my guys. I'm going to tell you um, three stories this morning. Um, one, actually two, two about a nine-year-old boy, and, uh, and one about a 68-year-old grown-ass man. I have no idea, <laughs> but could, you know, could be some, something personal. Uh, I grew up in a wonderful family. Um, my mom and dad were loving, they were attentive, uh, they were encouraging, they were affirming. I had two brothers, one younger, one older. Uh, they were none of those. <clears throat> um, my, my younger brother would irritate me, my older brother would, um, well, I'll give you an idea of my older brother. My older brother, he figured out that if he talked to me, he would come in late from dates and I'd already be asleep. And, and he would, he figured out that if he talked to me in my sleep, I would answer back, you know? So I would talk in my sleep. And so over time, he figured out if, if, if I ask him questions, you know, ask me questions, I would answer back in my sleep. And he discovered things about me that I don't want anyone to know, all right? So I, my, my brothers, I, it, was, it was still a fun and wonderful family. I was really, really lucky. Uh, my dad, when I, was, when I was nine years old, my dad helped me buy a fishing rod and a tackle box. I loved, there's nothing I loved more than going out into the woods and, and down to Johnson's Slough and catching uh, snakes and, and frogs and tadpoles and, and fish and so on. So my dad, he's like, yeah, he wanted to feed that. And so he bought me, a, or helped me buy a, a fishing rod and a tackle box. And then we went on vacation that year to Glen Lake in, in Michigan. And uh, well, my dad was on vacation, you know, and I'm telling my dad, dad, we gotta go fishing and you gotta get up at five in the morning. That's when they bite, you know, and my dad's like, uh, I got you the rod, you know. <laughs> I'm on vacation. Dude. I'm not getting up at five. So, so I went to my mom. I said, "Mom, you, you know, you got to take me out at five in the morning." She said, "All right, I'll do that." I said, "But set your alarm." She, I don't need to set my alarm. Just set my mental alarm clock. I'm like, "We'll be going out at nine. Sure enough, five o'clock in the morning, she's shaking me, waking me up, and, uh, and we go out onto the lake, at, and the, the mist is on the water, and we're puttering out, you know, like that, and we get out to a spot that I was sure there would be fish. And, uh, and we drop it in, you know, the whole, the whole deal, you know, the, the, uh, the worm, and the, the sinker, and the bobber, and all that kind of stuff, and we're sitting there, and my blessed mother is like, so, um, what happens when they bite? And I'm like, oh, no, I've never done this before. <laughs> Just watch that, watch that, watch that. So, and then it goes bloop, bloop, bloop. And I'm like, bah, bah, bah. And I caught this big, large mouth bass, you know? And we were thrilled. We were so excited. We kept it, you know, we'd put it in the boat. We'd go puttering back. And I said, we gotta eat it. I gotta eat it, you know? She's like, well, do you know how to, you know, fillet it? No idea, you know, no idea. But, but you know, we, uh, we managed it. Before, before we cut that fish up and ate it, my mom, my mom did a wood, wood burning of the fish. There's my fish, you know? 
This is my trophy, all right? <laughs> she was a one, is, is, she's still, she's still around. Uh, she's 97 years old, just a, a marvelous, marvelous woman, uh, a woman of prayer and a woman that truly loved her kids. My dad died uh, young, he died at 50 years old. And, uh, and my mom finished raising us boys and I can't, I can't tell you enough. Um, I was blessed too with great, with wonderful grandparents. My, uh, my grandfather came back from, from uh, the Holy Land that very year and he brought back this New Testament for me. And inside he, he wrote this, to my grandson Tom, May this great book be a guide for you throughout your entire life, and may God's richest blessings be yours always. This is my prayer for you, Gramps. And I have cherished this ever since. I was nine years old. However, uh, <clears throat> things went south for me. Uh, when, when I reached fourth grade, um, my teacher was Mrs. Dudek. And as wonderful as my family was, uh, Mrs. Dudek was that and more at the other end of the spectrum. She was awful. I was, I was not particularly a good student. I, uh, I didn't really enjoy school. It was confining and there was a big world out there. So I was constantly looking out the window. I was dreaming about fishing or about catching snakes. And, and, and I would talk to my neighbors and I wouldn't hand in my homework on time, you know. And, uh, and Mrs. Dudek had very little patience for that. Uh, whenever I would be talking to my neighbor, she would, she would get up out of her desk and she'd walk over to my desk and she'd grab me by, by the collar and drag me out into the hallway. She'd leave the, the door to the classroom open, but she would take me out in the hallway and she'd bang me up against the lockers. And she would say things like, Tom Mocha, you're a bad boy. You're a bad boy, I wish you were never in my classroom. Bang, 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 all the kids are listening. You're the kind of boy that's gonna grow up to be a criminal. You're a bad boy. Then she'd drag, I'd start crying, you know, I'd cry and, and she'd drag me back into the classroom. I remember one time she told Lori Napier in the front row, Lori, you go back and sit in Tom's desk. And she shoved me into Lori's desk in the front row. And there I'm crying, you know, and she says, she looks at the class, she goes, look, a crybaby. This happened multiple times multiple times. I, uh, I ended up, uh, I, I had, there was a, there was a math assignment. I, 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 I'm still not very good at math. Maybe this is why, but there was a math assignment and it, and it was a sheet like this, you know, with all these math, uh, problems on it. And, and we were supposed to take it home Answer the, I think it's like long division or something, I don't know what, and, and take it home, finish it, and bring it back the next day, right? I didn't do one of those. I just wrote across the top of the page and all the way down the right-hand side, Mrs. Dudek is, and then every nasty, dirty word I can think of, right on down. 
And uh, <clears throat> two days later, uh, I, uh, where I where I grew up and when I grew up, um, you, you would walk to school. You'd walk home at lunchtime, and mom would have lunch for you. And then you'd walk back to school, and then walk back at the end of the day. And so I walked home at lunchtime for lunch, no lunch on the table. My dad's car was in the driveway. I walk in the door, and my mom says, young man, your father and I would like to see you in the living room. No one goes in the living room. <laughs> I've got to be really in big trouble because no one goes in the living room. I go into the living room, and my dad's sitting at a chair, and he's tapping this piece of paper on his, on his hand. And I get in, and he says, sit down. I sit down, he goes, what's the meaning of this? Well, if you don't know the meaning of that, I'm not going to tell you. You know, you know No, I, I looked at it, and I was like, you know, I, I immediately I start crying, you know, because I'm a crybaby, right? And, uh, and I, I told him the story of Mrs. Dudek. My mom is a very nice, sweet woman until you mess with her kids. She, she was livid. She, the next morning, we went up. I did not go to the classroom first thing. We went straight into the principal's office. I had been to the principal's office before. I was fairly familiar with the principal. Mr. Boysen usually went into the principal's office. It was, well, hi, Tom, take your, your seat, you know. So <laughs> this particular time, I was with my mom, and, uh, and she was red-faced, and she said, you know, you need to know what's going on. And she told the story of Mrs. Dudek. And uh, I ended up seeing this, you know, the school, uh, kind of a roving uh, psychologist that wandered around all the grade schools and so on and, and uh, uh, tried to, you know, fix my brain or whatever. Um, but it was, it was a very, very difficult year. Uh, the next year, I, I uh, was in fifth grade, and I had a teacher who was different from Mrs. Dudek, much older, much older. She was kind of hunched over. She had gray hair. It was always in a bun. She wore those kind of dresses, you know, with the lace right tied up around the neck and lace doily kind of stuff on, on her sleeves. And, and, uh, and uh, she seemed all right, I guess, but I hated school. And I hated fifth grade, and I, you know, so we had it. We were in fifth grade. We were big kids now, and so we had to do a, a an extended uh, assignment, and it was it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. It was a month long assignment, and you had to do like three or four cards, uh, three by five cards, for every state of the union, with important stuff on it. You know, things that every kid should know. You know the the state flower of Massachusetts, and uh, you know, and the, you know the, the the state stone, right? The state flower, I still remember it. State flower of Tennessee, the iris, you know. <clears throat> it came time to hand in our month-long assignment. We were supposed to put them into checkbook boxes. Remember checkbook <laughs> boxes, right? Uh, you know, and we were supposed to put it into a checkbook box. All these all these index cards, and it was a big deal. And when she would call up one student at a time, and the students would go up front to her desk and put it on her desk, and she was building this pyramid 
of, of checkbook boxes. <gasps> the month-long assignment, you know, big deal. She calls each kid in turn. They walk up and they put it on the pyramid. She called my name. And she called again. <clears throat> and she called again. She said, Tom, where is your assignment? I don't, uh, I, well, I, uh, tears start kind of welling up in my eyes. She says, Tom, I'd like to see you in the hallway. Bernie, take over the classroom. And I'm like, here we go. You know, <laughs> so we walk out into the hallway. You know, first thing she does is she closes the door to the classroom. That was different. And then she walks me down the hall about five, six steps. She takes my hand and she says, Tom, where's your assignment? And I straighten myself up and I said, well, Mrs. Pevisek, I was on my way to school this morning, and I saw this beautiful leaf. And I put down my assignment, and I picked up that leaf. And while I was looking at that leaf, a squirrel came and grabbed that assignment and went right up a, a tree. She let go of my hand. <laughs> no, she, she took her other hand and, and held my hand with both hands. And she said, Tom, that's not what happened, is it? And then I started crying. And I said, no, no. You know, she said, you, you haven't completed your assignment, have you? Have you started it? Then she said this. You know what? That makes me sad. Because I think if you did your assignment, it would be the best in the class. So I'm going to give you an extra week. And if you work real hard for a week, I believe you can do what all the other kids, it took them a month to do, okay? So let's give it another week. You hand it in, we'll count it as if it's on time. Now I'm crying in earnest. She said, I believe in you, Tom Mocha. You've got stuff inside you that has yet to be tapped, and when it is tapped, it's going to be marvelous, just like this assignment. So now I'm crying, you know, and, and we, we, we kind of take a step or two toward the classroom, and then she says, wait, wait, wait. We walk further down the hallway. We get to the drinking fountain, you know, those porcelain drinking fountains, the really big things with two, two fountains, you know, like that, and, and she said, hold on just a second, we can't have you go into the classroom crying. So she pulls out from her, from her long sleeve thing, she pulls out this little hanky, and she wets it in the, no, I'm sorry, she, she told me to splash water on my face, and then she daubed it off with her hanky. And then she said, now, let me see a big smile on your face. I smiled. She said, put your shoulders back. When we walk into the classroom, everyone will know we've had a marvelous conversation. We open the door, I walk in, I'm smiling. You know, Mrs. Pevisek was my redemptress in so many ways. Uh, she set me up 
I, oh, I should tell you. I should show you. This, this is the, uh, this is the, <laughs> the checkbook box <laughs> with, with all the cards inside and a little note from Mrs. Bevisek. <laughs> I have no idea why I kept that, <laughs> but I did, and now I understand. Mrs. Pevisek set me up to hear the gospel. Two years later, I was at a Young Life camp. Um, actually, I was with my parents. Young Life's only for high school kids. Back then, it was only for high school kids. And, and uh, my parents were guests of Young Life at Frontier Ranch in, in Colorado. And I got to go with them to the camp. And there I heard the gospel for the first time. I, we were church-going folk, you know, good Presbyterians. But, I, you know, it was, I, didn't, it was, I was clueless. And I heard the gospel for the first time at Young Life Camp. I'll never forget Bob Mitchell. Uh, at, 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 uh, at one point in the week, he, he, he was saying, um, he was talking about uh, uh, surrendering your life to Christ. He said, it's a lot like Peter who, who you know, uh, asked Jesus if he could come out to meet him on the water. Jesus said, come on out. And, 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 and he goes walking out on the water. And then he, of course, you all know the story. He sees the waves and all that kind of stuff. He starts sinking. And he looks up to Jesus. And, and, and Bob Mitchell said, he said the simplest prayer in the Bible. He said, help. Help. Jesus reaches down, pulls him up out of the water. And Bob said, do you need help? Do you need help? Is there something on your insides that needs help? All you need to do is cry out. Jesus will reach down. He'll help you. And so I received Christ as my Savior. I surrendered my life to Jesus uh, that year. And, and when I came back, I was pumped. I was pumped. I was a new man in Christ. I, I came back and I bought this, by, this, this New Testament. You guys remember this version <laughs> that J.B. Phillips used to call it the cookbook version? <laughs> you know, looks a lot like a cookbook. And, uh, and I bought this, uh, and, and, and I poured over it. I mean, I was literally, I was a new man. Until stuff happened. And stuff happens, right? I mean, stuff happens. Uh, big problems, little problems, relationship problems. I was a teenager, teenager problems, right? And when problems came my way, I had a voice in the back of my head that would say, you're a bad boy. You're good for nothing. I wish you were never in my class. You're the kind of boy that's going to grow up to be a criminal. You're a bad boy, Tom Mocha. And so I, I, um, I had this churning on my insides and a yearning for, for some kind of relief. When I was 11 years old, I, uh, I found a stack of magazines in my older brother's closet. I stealthily slipped one at a time out of that stack of magazines and I, I went into my own closet and I poured over those images in those magazines. I quickly learned to masturbate to those images. I had no idea that I was developing an appetite. And that appetite grew into a destructive habit. And that destructive habit stuck with me. I went in and out and in and out of porn use all the way through junior high, all the way through high school, all the way through college. I tried to quit innumerable times, but I couldn't. 
Every time I heard that voice, every time I had those feelings, you're a loser, Tom Mocha. You're a bad boy, Tom Mocha. Off to the porn I would go for comfort, for self-soothing, for escape, for a different identity where girls liked me. Uh, three years out of college, I got married. And uh, I thought, I'm done with porn. <laughs> Not. Didn't take long. I was back at it. I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Mostly, I did a whole lot of lying and hiding. Three years after I got married, I went back to school. And I uh, uh, eventually landed in seminary. And, and over time, I, I became a pastor. Uh, I was, I was, first I was on Young Life staff, and then I was a pastor. I was pastor for 30 years. And that whole time, I was in the pastorate. I was in and out and in and out of porn use. And I felt a lot of guilt and a whole lot of shame. But mostly, I did a lot of lying and hiding from everybody. It was my secret, and I would take it to the grave. After a long time in the pastorate, I, uh, I went back to school again and uh, eventually became a consultant to churches and faith-based organizations. And I did that for, uh, for eight years. I thought it was going to be a great idea. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to travel around the United States. I'm going I'm to, you know, see the world, right? It was great, except for one thing. I was in hotel rooms three, four nights every week. And instead of going in and out of porn, I was on it every night in the hotel rooms. And on top of that, I started drifting down to hotel bars and drinking. I hadn't done a lot of drinking before that, but I figured it out pretty quickly. And with the drinking, went flirting with women. And you can guess where that led. Eventually, I invited a woman up to my room. And I often tell men um, in Samson society, um, God, in his great mercy, saw to it that I was caught that very first time. My wife, who is a very good person, a very good person, she was positively devastated. I was an adulterer, and I committed adultery, and she never in her wildest imagination would have guessed that. But I had been committing adultery with her from the first day we got married through porn. She, it took her a while, but she gathered herself together and got us into marriage counseling. We went to marriage counseling every week, sometimes twice a week, for over two years. And, uh, and I did, unfortunately, I did what had become second nature by that time. I... Um, I continued to lie. I told enough of the truth to make it look like I was telling the truth, but I never told the whole truth. And she knew. After two years of that, she finally gave up and divorced me. I can barely even choke out that word, divorce. I was, I was, lost. I couldn't believe it. I was divorced. 
I really was a bad boy. And that little boy inside me said, see, see, you are a bad boy. And I believed it. It was sometime after that I was, I was in my library late one night in the dark by myself weeping. And through my tears and the darkness, the only title I could read on my shelves was Nate Larkin's book, Samson and the Pirate Monks. He had loaned it to me some, some years before, uh, wanted me to review it because I was Mr. Big Pastor in the community. And I gave it kind of a cursory reading and handed it back to him and said, Nate, you're going to help a lot of men with that. Well done. You know, self-righteous bullshit. <laughs> because I was so hung up on my image that I couldn't even rescue myself from the garbage. So here I was years later in a puddle of tears. I got off my butt, went over, picked up that book, sat down, turned on the light, and I poured over that book, consumed it. Finished it about 4.30 in the morning, put it down, and I determined in my heart I was going to get myself into a Samson Society meeting, and I didn't care who saw me. I had what we affectionately call the gift of desperation. So three days later, I went to my first uh, Samson Society meeting, and there I told a little bit of my own truth, okay? Um, but I went back, and I, and I told some more. And I went back, and I went back, and I went back. I vividly remember I was driving home from Christ Community uh, on a Monday night, and uh, I had this wonderful, ebullient light feeling in my whole being. <laughs> and it dawned on me wait a minute, I'm not hiding anymore. For the first time in my life, I'm not hiding. And it felt absolutely liberating. <laughs> Samson Society uh, pulled my butt out of the fire. Um, And that little boy quieted down over time, wasn't overnight, but over time, the little boy slowly stopped accusing me. And the little boy started receiving healing. You know, I used to look into the mirror and I would see a face looking back at me. And I would see that face and say, fraud, fraud, you're lying, you're a fraud. But you know what? In the fifth chapter of James, James, says in an epistle that if we confess our sins one to another, we'll be healed. We'll be healed. And men, and I mean it, 
men because it's pretty unique to men. We don't do that. We keep it to ourselves because we're men. But there's a little boy in a lot of us. He's crying out for healing. If only, if only I could tell someone. If only there was someone I could tell and they wouldn't reject me. Next time you look in the mirror, will you see a fraud? Or will you see a grown ass man? That little boy in you needs healing. Confess your sins one to another, and you will be healed.